Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's hearing. After brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. In consultation with the ranking member and pursuant to rule 11E, I wanna make members of the subcommittee aware that other members of the full committee may join us today. I wanna, um, and this is my opening statement. Good morning and thank you to my colleagues and our witnesses for joining me today as we review the 2018 Farm Bill Horticulture, Title and Urban Agriculture. This will be a two-part hearing where we will hear Secretary Moffitt and Natural Resource Conservation Service Chief Cosby on our first panel, followed by a second panel with industry stakeholders and producers. The horticulture title of the Farm Bill covers programs that support the specialty crop industry, USDA certified organic produce, product, products, both crops and animals, <coughs> excuse me, hemp, local agricultural markets, and more. In my district of the U.S. Virgin Islands, farmers are mostly small and local producers. Many of these producers participate in programs, such as the USDA's local agriculture programs, among others, so today's topics are very important to me. While other Farm Bill titles can benefit these sectors, today's conversation will focus on the holder culture title provisions and the specific provisions related to urban agriculture in the 2018 Farm Bill. Some of these provisions include the creation of local agricultural market program to support the development, coordination, and expansion of domestic direct-to-consumer marketing, local and regional food markets, and value-added agricultural products, and the establishment of an Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production at USDA to provide urban ag producers resources to take advantage of USDA programs and initiatives and to promote urban indoor and other agricultural practices. Other provisions in the 2018 Farm Bill also enhanced enforcement of organic products, limited programmatic fraud, developed new technologies, strengthened USDA organic certifications, and provided organic producers with accurate data collection to ensure that organic agriculture is part of the climate smart agriculture solutions. Producers in these sectors have been able to leverage programs in the horticultural title to face the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. As we move forward a greater sense of normalcy, we are invested in making sure producers in the industry have the necessary resources in this space, and um, particularly when it comes to addressing the unprecedented supply chain disruption and challenges to market access many producers experienced during the pandemic. Today's hearing presents an, an important opportunity to conduct oversight into the programs from the 2018 Farm Bill and consider how we best support producers and stakeholders. I'd now like to welcome the distinguished ranking member, the gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, for any opening remarks he would like to give. Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate everyone being here. I appreciate all the committee having the opportunity to have this kind of meeting. But uh, I think this hearing uh, marks an important step as this is our first hearing to review the horticulture title of the 2018 Farm Bill. So as we prepare for the next Farm Bill, it is important to hear from both USDA and stakeholders to learn what's working and what's not. 
The horticulture title is broad and it covers a variety of issues, including specialty crop invasive species, plant health, crop protection tools, local agricultural markers, food safety, and hemp. While today's hearing lends itself to provisions in Title 10, it is important to note there are provisions in other titles of the Farm Bill that impact the horticultural industry. I look forward to future oversight on these other provisions. The specialty crop industry is very diverse and includes fruits and vegetables, tree nuts, dried fruits, and horticulture and nursery crops. The sheer diversity and unique set of challenges for this industry can make the development of specialty crop policies difficult. However, one program that has proven to be effective is the Specialty Crop Block Grant Program. This program was first funded in 2006 and provides state departments of agriculture funds to award promotion and marketing grants aimed at improving the competitiveness of specialty crops in the United States. I believe that one reason this program is so successful is because it allows states to fund projects that are unique to their specialty crop industries. Another important program authorized in the horticulture title is also authorizes the importance of plant pest and disease management and disaster prevention program, which works to strengthen, prevent, detect, and mitigate invasive species. As we all know too well, invasive species can have a significant impact on the agricultural industry. Both USDA and state departments of agriculture play a critical role in controlling the spread and eventually eradicating these invasive species. I am pleased that my colleagues found it necessary to maintain the significant advances made in 2014 for this program and look forward to learning how we can further improve this program to prevent the spread of invasive species. Another important provision I'm excited to hear more about today is the creation of the FIFA Interagency Working Group in the 2018 Farm Bill. This working group consisting of USDA, EPA, Department of the Interior, the Department of Commerce, and the Council of Environmental Quality is designed to help improve the consultants and consultation process required under the Endangered Species Act for pesticide registration and registration review. I am all too familiar with just how cumbersome this interagency cooperation can be, especially in regard to the ESA. It is important that producers have continued access to these critical tools to protect their crops from damaging insects and weeds. The past three farm bills have shown significant progress in the horticulture title. However, as much as it has changed in the world since 2018, I am eager to hear more about the impacts and challenges of these programs and suggested ways we can improve the delivery. I thank Undersecretary Moffitt and Chief Cosby and all the other witnesses for taking the time to be here with us today. Your insight, expertise, and service to agriculture are greatly appreciated, and I'm looking forward to having a robust conversation about programs
within the horticulture title today. And with that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you to my ranking member. Uh, I want to thank our witnesses who are with us today. We have two panels. Our first panel, I'm pleased to welcome two distinguished uh, individuals. Our first witness is Ms. Jenny Lester Moffitt, who serves as the Undersecretary of Marketing and Regulatory Reform at the United States Department of Agriculture. Our second witness for the first panel is Mr. Terry Cosby, who is the Chief of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Welcome you both today. We will now proceed to hearing your testimony. All other members are requested that if they would like to submit their opening statements for the record so that the witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure there's ample time for question. Each of our witnesses will have five minutes. The timer should be visible to you and that timer will count down to zero at which point your time will have expired. Undersecretary Moffitt, thank you so much for joining us and please begin when you are ready. Thank you, Chair Plaskett, Ranking Member Baird, and members of the committee. It is thank you so much for the opportunity to be before you today to share the work of the United States Department of Agriculture's efforts to build more and better markets for American agriculture. In my role at USDA, I've had the honor of meeting people around the nation who are building innovative partnerships to solve problems in their communities. Earlier this month, I visited Atlanta. Seven years ago, the Public Transit Authority there, MARTA, partnered with farmers and organizations to open fresh markets at transit stations located in neighborhoods with limited food access. In 2018, the program received funding with, through the Local Food Promotion Program, funded through the Farm Bill, to expand their reach. When I visited, I saw the impact firsthand of people having access to fresh, healthy produce. The program shows just how important partnerships are to addressing local and regional food needs. And it demonstrates one of the core values of our goals at USDA, to create more and better markets for farmers and consumers, not from the top down, but from the bottom up and the middle out. This is the power of the Farm Bill, and the authorities and funding provided in it by Congress are helping us strengthen to build a more resilient food system in communities across the country in a variety of ways, because there is no one-size-fits-all solution to approaching the challenges faced by producers and consumers. As I travel the country, I hear repeatedly how important the local agriculture marketing program is to farmers and to communities. That's why we dedicated $130 million from the American Rescue Plan Act to expand and strengthen opportunities for farmers to sell to institutions such as universities, hospitals, and settings operated by local, tribal, and state governments through the LAMP program. And that's why we've also dedicated $600 million to creating new programs to build partnerships that improve local food procurement opportunities and marketing channels while providing nutritious food to food banks, pantries, and schools. Partnerships are critical to building more and better markets. Just look at organic agriculture. The public-private partnership that drives the certified organic program is thriving. Between 2019 and 2020, organic retail sales increased 13%. We will continue to protect the organic seal, supporting aspiring farmers, and strengthen the organic program. So that's why I'm pleased today to announce that the review of the Origin of Livestock final rule is complete and details will be made later today. 
I know many members of this committee have worked for a long time on this rule, and we are thankful for your leadership. This rule will give organic producers more opportunities to compete fairly in the market by establishing clear standards that ensure more consistent production and certification practices. At the same time, we need to support farmers transitioning to organic to provide increased opportunities for mentorship. With partnership in mind, we are developing this initiative that Secretary Vilsack announced last summer to invest at least $200 million to support farmers transitioning to organic. Partnership also drives us as we look forward into the future. In partnership with State Departments of Agriculture, we awarded $170 million last year in the specialty crop block grants to fund the growing need for critical research, marketing, and education programs for specialty crops. And this year, we have another $73 million available to support more of this work. We've also partnered with 45 states and 48 separate tribes to approve plans for hemp production, creating new income streams and supporting broader rural prosperity. And as we enhance markets to build new ones, we will continue to create partnerships with technical assistance providers so that farmers and ranchers, especially those who have been historically underserved, have support navigating our programs. Because having the programs is not enough, we must also ensure access. In addition, we continue the relationships with trade partners around the world as we grow international markets for American agriculture. Trade is an essential economic driver in many rural communities and supports more than 1.3 million American jobs. I'd be remiss if I did not recognize the dedicated staff at USDA, at the Agricultural Marketing Service, and the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service who work hard to strengthen American agriculture. In fact, APHIS is celebrating its 50th anniversary this weekend, and their work ensuring animal and plant health has helped build better markets for both domestic and international trade partners abroad. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here today and for your leadership. I look forward to working collaboratively with members of this committee of Congress and Congress as you work to draft the 2023 Farm Bill and continue to champion American agriculture. I'm happy to address any questions you have. Thank you. Thank you very much, Undersecretary. Chief. Chief Cosby, please begin when you are ready. Thank you, Madam Undersecretary, for your testimony. Thank you, Chair Placid, Ranking Member Barrett, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today to discuss USDA's support for urban agriculture. My name is Terry Cosby. I am the Chief of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Prior to becoming Chief, I was a State Conservationist in Ohio during the launch of the Cleveland High Tunnel Initiative, so I've seen firsthand the many benefits of urban agriculture for the communities. I've seen youth inspired to agriculture careers when they are otherwise drifting. I've seen people develop businesses that either supplement other jobs or provide a primary source of income. I've seen people health improve and communities come together. I greatly appreciate the subcommittee's invitation and I look forward to the conversation today. The USDA Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production, which I will refer to today as the office, is housed within the NRCS but our work is supported by and coordinated across the department. The office works collaboratively with other USDA agencies to support ur urban producers. 
We established an internal advisory committee with members from over 20 USDA agencies to guide and contribute to USDA urban agriculture efforts. The 28 Farm Bill authorized $25 million a year. Excuse me, office. Chief Cosby. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but uh, to the committee staff, the timer is not. Thank you. Chief Cosby, you got some extra time there if you'd like to start again. <laughs> Thank you for that. The 2018 Farm Bill authorized $25 million a year for the office. In FY20, Congress provided $5 million, and FY21, $7 million, and in FY22, $8.5 million. Feedback from and engagement from urban producers and stakeholders across the country will be critical for USDA work to support urban agriculture and communities. The inaugural meeting of the Federal Advisory Committee for Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production was held virtually on March 23rd and 24th. 1,430 people registered to attend and 184 registered to provide comments during the public forum. I'm happy to provide further details about what we learned during the Q&A. The committee and the public feedback will guide future priorities for the office. As a public meeting, it was recorded and will be made available through our farmers.gov urban website. USDA offers several targeted opportunities for urban communities and projects. Our Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production Competitive Grant Program support projects that promote community gardens and nonprofit farms, provide job training and education, and develop business plans and zoning for urban agriculture with priorities given to communities lacking access to fresh and healthy foods. Since the office started, this program has funded 31 awards totaling just over $7.9 million. Additionally, our cooperative agreement pilot program funds local government projects to develop and test strategies to increase compost and reduce food waste. Since the office started, this program has funded 37 awards totaling just over $3 million. This spring, we will announce the opening of two funding opportunities. The office has collaborated with the Farm Service Agency to establish 11 pilot urban county committees, which will provide feedback on how USDA can support urban agriculture in that local area. To demonstrate USDA's commitment to urban agriculture, FSA and NRCS are establishing brick and mortar urban service centers, as well as mobile presence in each city selected for the urban county committees. These service centers will connect urban producers to USDA programs and services developing in urban areas, including the local and regional market initiative that Undersecretary Moffitt discussed earlier. USDA will engage trusted community-based organizations in each city to build trust and to raise awareness of USDA services available and support urban producers through sign-up process. Importantly, our efforts are not limited to these cities. NRCS and FSA are ensuring that in all state field officers are trained to support urban producers. The office is updating an urban agriculture toolkit to help producers and employees easily find all USDA programs supporting urban agriculture. We're also preparing training on how to work with urban customers for, U for employees across USDA. At NRCS, we're reviewing guidance and technical documents, practice standards, and payment rates to remove barriers to serving urban producers and ensure payment rates are effective, reflective of costs of producing food in urban locations. High and low tunnel standards have been adjusted, soil health, stormwater runoff, water conservation, and pollinator habitats are currently under review. We are working to support for urban producers and transition from urban producers through the Environmental Equip uh, Program and our Conservation Stewardship Program. 
In conclusion, USDA is committed to supporting urban agriculture and believe it plays an important role in addressing food insecurities, climate change, and equity. However, we know there is more work to be done. I think, want to thank you again for the opportunity to appear before the subcommittee to provide an update on USDA's urban agriculture efforts, and I look forward to the questions. Thank you very much for both of the testimonies. At this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. <clears throat> you will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get as many questions as possible. Please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize background noise. I'll recognize myself for five minutes. Um, Honorable Jennifer Lester Moffitt, may I ask you, what are the steps, what steps are USDA taking to reduce supply chain challenges to further support orderly marketing of fruits, vegetables, and other specialty crops? Chair Plaska, thank you for that question. Um, there, we're taking several steps because we know the challenges are many, and so the solutions also must be many. Um, so one of the, the one of the key things that we're doing, of course, is working on many of the the port issues and the supply chain issues with ports. Um, so just a couple weeks ago, I was able to join Senator. Um, uh, yeah, I was able to, to join, uh, sorry, Senator um, Cantwell in uh, Portland at the Port of Portland to open a new pop-up site there um, so ag shippers can get their products to international markets and, and also domestic markets. I think a key thing is, is the work that we're doing on more and better markets, generally the work we're doing on local and regional markets, um, the things that we're doing to, to create thriving local and regional food systems. So the, the work I talked about with the LAMP program is very important because it's building more community capacity for producers to be able to supply local and regional markets. It's building the community networks. It's building the infrastructure. Um, so we're working on relieving pressure points along the food supply chain by adding and enhancing existing local and regional markets throughout the supply chain. Uh, we currently are also, of course, working um, in partnership with the specialty crop industry. As we know, the specialty crop block grants are really important as far as enhancing competitiveness. Um, so again, more and better markets for specialty crops is really key and crucial. I talked about the work and that I saw in Georgia. There are so many different communities. I visited Massachusetts earlier this year as well, uh, where there are producers who are also accessing new local and regional markets. They're selling to universities, they're selling to hospitals. These are ways that we're get, bringing more access for especially fresh fruits and vegetables and produce into new markets and enhancing and, and really diversifying the supply chain. Well, can I ask as a follow-up to that, you talk about specialty crops and competitive grants. Um, you know, there's always an issue in all agencies at all levels in ensuring that underserved or small communities, rural areas, that those smaller farmers have access to be able to compete in, in these areas. Is there any special thought or what are you all doing to ensure that that takes place? Absolutely. And um, 
uh, ensuring access to our programs is essential. It's something that is a priority for us in this administration. It is a priority for me personally as someone who was a producer myself, and I know how challenging it can be to access grants, to apply for grants. So things like technical assistance are really key pieces that we're doing um, really to be able to provide that. So just on Friday, and for our meat and poultry processing grant programs that we have at USDA, we announced new technical assistance providers. These are people that we've partnered with, who um, we're contracted with, and who are skilled and, um, and have the technical expertise to work with small, mid-sized producers to be able to do all of the work, the pre-application work, as well as the application work um, to be able to apply for and access USDA funding. So technical assistance is key. And then also, of course, just making sure we're doing the outreach in an appropriate way um, and it really building relationships with trusted partners, partners in the communities who know that and, and have that same access that we're looking for um, so that people are aware of the program and also are able to participate. Thank you. I may not have time, Chief Cosby, for you to answer this, but any written um, response that you could give would be appreciated. As you're aware, the 2018 Farm Bill established the Federal Advisory Committee for Agriculture and Innovative Production to, quote, advise the Secretary on the development of policies and outreach relating to urban, indoor, and other emerging agricultural practices, end quote. I understand that the Federal Advisory Committee held its first public meeting last week and was hoping uh, if you could share with the committee in written format or at, at different points if you may have this during the questioning, the details of that first meeting. So thank you very much for that. Um, at this time, I would ask the ranking member, Mr. Baird, if you have any questions here in five minutes or next. Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate that. Um, Under Secretary Moffat, in your written testimony, you say farmers and ranchers don't have extra hours in their day uh, to navigate all the layers of application processes on their own. Uh, does Congress need to update any of the programs in the horticulture title to streamline the application process, making it easier for producers to apply? Yeah, so certainly that's, um, you know, as, as someone who, again, was a farmer and, and, and ran my family's farm for 10 years, um, I, I know firsthand um, that, you know, the many hats that farmers and ranchers are wearing. Um, and so the access to programming is, is really important and technical assistance is important. You also highlighted the need for more streamlined applications as well. That's something that we've been working on as well at USDA so that we're not just certainly providing our technical assistance through trusted local partners, but also working on streamlining our applications. We are constantly listening and every grant that we do, we're taking an iterative approach, bringing feedback in that we hear from producers, from applicants, um, to make sure that, our, that we're best serving the people that we're in meeting to serve. And so that means making sure we're serving farmers and ranchers, making sure that we're serving communities especially as well. Um, and so we're taking that in and we're working on that through all of the process Technical assistance support is a key part of that as well. Um, so ease of application as well as the technical assistance is a key part of what we do. Well, thank you. I have another question for you. Um, you know, uh, 
Your testimony also states that we should continue to support and strengthen markets for American agriculture. So I'm kind of changing in the game a little here. It's important to talk about the role both the USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs and the USDR Chief Agricultural Negotiator play in developing new markets for U.S. exports. I'm disappointed that neither position currently has a nominee and hope that the Biden administration will work expeditiously to fill these vacancies. But that being said, are the current programs in the horticulture title enough to support markets for specialty crops in the United States, or should we be looking at a new authority to carry out this mission? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that very important question. And since I've started at USDA, we've worked very closely between the marketing and regulatory programs mission area and the trade and foreign affairs mission area. Um, it, the work that we do collaboratively and in partnership is important to support trade. Um, so certainly want to recognize that that you know, certainly we are working ahead and, and charging ahead in that. There are many programs that we have through APHIS, um, really taking a science-based approach, looking at the science, working with our trade partners, addressing uh, those different trade barriers, um, having those, those, that dialogue with our trade partners so that we can open up markets. A really key part of that, and you mentioned in your opening statements, um, the, the PPQ section 7721, the funding for um, that we have for plant and pest disease management, surveillance, um, working with, and especially in partnership with state departments of agriculture and other local governments so that we, we know what pests are out there, we can eradicate, we can control, um, again, so that we're constantly able to be able to address the trade issues that might arise. Um, so we have certainly those important programs in place right now. I really appreciate hearing the, that the interagency cooperation, I think that's so important that we head, all head in it same direction. Uh, so I want to change to the chief. You know, in your written testimony at the Office of Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production talks regularly with the federal agencies like HUD and EPA to discuss opportunities for collaboration. Can you describe this effort uh, in more detail and what collaboration will those agencies uh, look at? Um, sorry, could you please turn your microphone on? It keeps going off. <laughs> Thank you. Keep and Madam Chair, I'm, I'm about out of time. Well, I've gone over time. Can we allow the witness to finish this question? Of course. Thank you. As, as, as the uh, agencies are working together collaboratively, as I said before, it's great that we can do that because if you can service the basic needs of individuals from the housing, which HUD helps with, and when we start talking about uh, healthy and safe foods, which NRCS, the Office of Urban Ag, is, is, is helping with, we, we are 
accomplishing a lot, but we've had a lot of conversations with our HUD, HUD partners, and we're having conversations from all the federal family about how we can all work together to support urban agriculture and, and what happens in a lot of these areas. You know, it's, um, there's a lot of help needed in, in our urban sector, from access to land to uh, understanding how to grow uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, also for looking at the type of soils that that these uh, fruits and vegetables will be grown in. And so we have a lot of help that we can offer. But it's been great, the collaboration between uh, not only all the agencies within USDA, but the federal family to pull together to support urban agriculture. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the witnesses' uh, comments. And with that, Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you. I now recognize the gentlewoman from Ohio, Ms. Brown, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairwoman Plaskett and Ranking Member uh, Baird for holding this hearing. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today to review horticulture and urban agriculture programs in the Farm Bill. Um, I would first like to take a moment to recognize and congratulate Mr. Cosby on his appointment as Chief of USDA's Natural Resource Conservative uh, Service. Uh, prior to his current post, Mr. Cosby served as the state conservationist in Ohio um, for 16 years. During his time as state con conservationist, Mr. Cosby worked to transform Northeast Ohio into a national leader in the urban agriculture um, movement. So, um, Chief Cosby, you have left quite a legacy, and I look forward to working with you, building a on the success you helped jumpstart back home. Um, in your written testimony, you referenced your firsthand experience in promoting urban agriculture in Cleveland. So can you speak to the specific projects that were developed there? Thank you for the question, Representative Brown. It's great to see you. And, Thanks. you know, as state conservationist in Ohio for 16 years, you know, I, uh, I, it, it, it was great just working on urban agriculture as, along with all of the rural uh, things that we did. But I was approached uh, back in 2011, 2012, then at the time by Congresswoman Masa Fudge, who was the Congresswoman there and now is the HUD director, uh, HUD uh, uh, secretary. We worked and talked a lot about the, the congressional district there in Cleveland and how we could help. You know, we from food insecurity um, and, and all of the health issues that were going on in, in the inner city, uh, from diabetes to high blood pressure and, and all the health risks. You know, something that we, we talked about a lot is, is that, and I, I use this term all the time, is that your zip code should not dictate your life expectancy because if in the, in the inner city there in Cleveland, and if you drove down the road 10 miles, your life expectancy went up almost 15 years because of what was happening in the inner city. And so we looked at how we could help, and we, and we brought in our Farm Service Agency director, and we sat down and started talking about how can we help uh, this congressional district. And so from that, we started talking about uh, food and food insecurities and, and raising vegetables. One of the things that was happening in Cleveland is there was a lot of abandoned homes and homes being torn down, and so we had these abandoned lots that we could uh, we talked about, there's a lot of green space we talked about. One of the things is Cleveland is also a refugee city. Uh, folks that are coming from other countries that didn't have access to land to, to grow fruits and vegetables from that native land. And so it was a great thing. We work very closely with community-based organizations to identify the need 
and also to build trust in the community. A lot of times there's not trust in these communities, and so we were able to build a lot of trust there. And from that, I know that in the city there now, I know there's close to 200 hoop houses built there. Something else that happened there, when you start talking about neighborhood neighborhoods, uh, folks were able to come out in the evenings. They were there working in their gardens, and and it became a social event. We had individuals that were um, producing vegetables and, and paying their way through college, entrepreneurship. Uh, so it has the, uh, you can do a lot of things from urban agriculture, and it benefits the community so greatly. Well, thank you. You kind of led into my um, second question, which was the benefits you witnessed from the projects like uh, the Cleveland High Tunnel and um, the High Tunnel Initiative, and was just curious if that model could be successfully replicated and scaled to other cities. We are already doing that. Uh, it, I think the, what we started there in Cleveland has been the model that we're trying to use across the country, all over the country, with the 11 offices that have been announced um, so far. We're working with those state conservation, so FSAs. We're looking at how we can do that. We're establishing urban uh, county committees out there to, to help with this. And so it is all hands on deck, and it, it, is, it is a project that is near and dear to my heart, and it's something that we really are going to work hard on. But, you know, it doesn't have to have one of these established offices. Urban agriculture can happen anywhere in this country. And so we're working with all of our state conservationists across the country to make sure that happens. Well, thank you very much. I know I'm nearing the end of my time, but I do have one other question. And that is um, that, you know, in 2018, the Farm Bill directed USDA to establish the Office of Urban Agriculture, which is currently housed in NRCS. How are you working internally within the agency and externally across agencies like the Department of HUD um, to grow urban agriculture? And with that, I would yield back. Thank you. Thank you. I would ask the witness if he could respond to that in writing um, as time has expired at this time. Uh, with that, I would now recognize the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Davis, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. It's great to be with you, my friend, and also a good friend, Mr. Baird, the ranking member. And I appreciate you holding this subcommittee hearing. As the former chair of this subcommittee, I actually have been enjoying the discussion on how we can improve the horticulture title to actually adapt to this post-pandemic reality where high inflation persists, ag input costs are rising, and the supply chain crisis really continues to strain our local communities. These are the issues that affect our farmers and our producers most right now, and, and they're not being taken very seriously, in my opinion, by President Biden. And I, I believe it's something that we're going to have to take into consideration as we look toward the next farm bill um, if this administration status quo continues. Uh, the 2018 farm bill sought to bolster our ag economy by enhancing and creating new programs to ensure our farmers and producers can stay competitive. Uh, for example, the local agriculture market program, the hemp program, the increased technical assistance and marketing programs for producers were all ways we envisioned to give our domestic producers more opportunities to be successful and strengthen our national security via domestic food security. So my question for you, Undersecretary Moffitt, it's great to see you and I appreciate you being here. Uh, also, Chief, Chief Cosby, thank you for uh our, our conversation before the hearing. I, I look forward to working with both of you uh, throughout uh, the next few years. Uh, 
Undersecretary Moffitt, how do you see our USDA marketing programs needing to evolve and adapt to ensure that our farmers and producers who have been at the forefront of what's looking to turn into a financial crisis for many of them, uh, how can they keep their heads above water? Yes, thank you for that question. And, you know, I, it's, you know, as you mentioned, many of those programs that you outlined are, are essentially, are exactly doing that. The local agricultural marketing program is building more community capacity and connections to really strengthen the ties between farmer and consumer, um, close those linkages and really strengthen the ties. So we're bringing more of that food dollar back to producers, um, which is a, an important way to strengthen our rural economy, our agricultural economy, and our food system. It also creates a really strong, thriving food system. You talked about equity and access and technical assistance to our programs, and that is very important, especially for producers. Um, you talked a lot about, um, you know, we talk a lot about building our our capacity from the ground up and the middle out, really strengthening, again, the ability that farmers and ranchers are doing. Uh, certainly, we are working on, um, and we're very well aware of many of the supply chain issues and, and working very um, uh, intently on addressing those through the myriad of things. I talked about the pop-ups, um, sites at the ports, um, talked about you know a lot of the work that we're doing really um, to keep a pulse on what's happening as well as, as, as pivot and address the issues that we're hearing from producers, farmers, and ranchers. I know firsthand from my own family's experience how tight things can be, um, and, and we hear that day in and day out, and that is our, our primary position is to really be, um, be there and to support farmers and ranchers and consumers across the country. So, so under the marketing programs you mentioned, those are the programs that you feel are, are helping our producers the most to address the high inflation and, and rising input costs. It is very important that we're really building a thriving food economy. Um, as we address all of the different things, we're, um, we're really, you know, uh, making sure that we're addressing it from, again, from the bottom up and the middle out. It, that is a key thing. I see um, as I've traveled around the country visiting with different consumers, for ex example, and producers. I was in Iowa last week meeting with a, um, with a pork producer, and she talked about how they're working and procuring from and buying and building community access to with 1,700 different local suppliers. And so that is really about addressing all of the different supply chains because as we're looking at and, and, and important work on meat and poultry supply chain, it also is about all of the producers, all of the, whether it's, you know, equipment manufacturers, seed dealers, um, you know, uh, electricians, all of the people in rural America who are part of our ag economy, um, really, you know, keeping that pulse on and making sure that, um, that we're doing what we can to address those. Well, thank you. And thank you for your, your responses. I look forward to working with you over the next uh, few months and into the next Congress as we debate this next farm bill uh, to see the real results. And, and Chief Cosby, one last comment. Um, I, I would really love to work with you as we go into the next farm bill on creating some flexibility within the, the programs that your agency oversees. Thank you. I yield back. Thank you very much for your questions. <clears throat> At this time, I recognize the good doctor from Washington State, Congresswoman Shire, please, for your five minutes. 
Well, thank you very much, Chairwoman Plaskett, for, for holding this important hearing and welcome to our witnesses. Uh, Undersecretary Moffitt, it is a pleasure to see you again. And I want to thank you again for coming out to Washington State a few months back so that you could see the great work happening and uh, how important specialty crops are to Washington State. Um, when you were in town, we were able to highlight the importance of the specialty crop block grant program. And I just want to take a moment to emphasize uh, just how important this is. Uh, it falls under the horticultural title of the Farm Bill and the block grant program and its partner, the Specialty Crop Research Initiative, fund research uh, to address the critical needs of specialty crops in, in our state, around the country, and frankly, around the world um, because of applicability. They support more than 300 crops in Washington state and past funding for projects in, in Washington has supported efforts to combat uh, fungicide resistance and wine grapes, precision uh, irrigation for fruit growers, pest prevention, and we also talked about little cherry disease. Um, Under Secretary Moffitt, I would love to hear a little bit from you about these vital programs and how you evaluate them. So for example, could you tell us about the work that USDA has done to establish standards to measure the performance of the specialty crop block grant program and the farmer's market and local food promotion programs and what those measures tell us about uh, how these programs are meeting their goals? Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Representative Schreier. It was a pleasure to be out there in Washington State to meet with producers and to see the impact of the Specialty Crop Block Grant. Um, coming from the California Department of Agriculture, I know how important that program is in partnership um, and administration with state departments of agriculture to, so to see what was going on and the research that's being funded and the programs that are being funded in Washington State was, was um, really just a wonderful, wonderful day. So thank you for having me in your district. Um, and, and yeah, performance measures are so important. And we actually did a lot of work in the past couple years, and I'm really pleased that that this round of the Specialty Crop Block Grant, as well as our other programs, have new performance measures, new objectives that we are, have created. And we did this in very strong partnership with grantees. Um, we wanted to make sure that as we were adjusting our performance measures, we were getting the data that we need to really provide the input, but also that we're not being an overburden on the people who we're trying to, um, to, to we are supporting and in partnering with in that research. So we did update our performance measures last year, and the new round of specialty crop block grants now includes those new performance measures. We see the impact as you mentioned, of course, the number of grants in Washington State through the life of the program, we funded over $880 million in programming um, in, again, partnership with states, as well as uh, on over 11,000 different crops. Um, and so gathering that data so that we have the feedback that we need to better understand the impact of the program, while also not being a, a burden too much on our grant applicants is a key part of that. So I'm excited that we were able to update our performance measures and our metrics there and um, look forward to getting new data from producers and, and from our applicants as well. Thank you. And thank you for striking that balance. I think that will be a big relief uh, for our farmers and, and, and researchers. Um, I wanted to mention two more things. Uh, first is really short. I just wanted to 
thank you for finalizing the rule for the origin of livestock. Um, my organic dairy farmers will be just thrilled to hear this. Um, and then lastly, I wanted to touch on uh, SCRI, the Specialty Crop Research Initiative uh, funding. Um, there was it, there there is supposed to be a matching element. Uh, there was a waiver that was available for SCRI that allowed our farmers to participate. That was left out uh, in uh, in the last farm bill. We've had a fix every year uh, to make sure that our farmers and our researchers could participate because a matching fund would make that prohibitively expensive uh, and would block this. And so I would just uh, like to call attention to that to make sure that we keep that waiver uh, in this next farm bill. And thank you very much. And I yield back. Thank you for your questions. And at this time, we'll recognize uh, Representative Balderson for your questions for the witnesses in this first panel. And thank you for participating in the hearing. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. Uh, and thank everyone for coming to the committee today. Uh, perfect timing for myself, I guess. Uh, my first question is for Undersecretary Moffitt. Uh, good morning. You mentioned in your testimony that the USDA is allocating $130 million in ARPA funds to promote competition and create more and better markets for local and regional food producers by expanding opportunities to sell various institutions. Can you elaborate on what exactly USDA will be spending these funds on and what current or new programs within the horticulture title will be required for USDA to properly expand these opportunities to farmers? Yes, sir, and thank you for that question. Um, we will be, the $130 million is um, included in the Local Agricultural Marketing Programs grant, so the, uh, the Local Food Promotion Program, as well as the Regional Food Systems Partnership Program, two grant programs that are part of that family of four grants. Um, and it's uh, what we've seen in the past couple years is a, a very strong trend and, and upward uh, applications. So we've seen almost a double from 20, from the applications from 2020 to 2021 in the demand for the program. And so hence the need to, to supplement that with ARPA funds. We're really focused on um, and, and encouraging to see applications that are focused on local and regional um, food systems for institutional markets. Uh, so that's hospitals, schools, universities, um, because we see the value in, in really strengthening those markets. There's a ton going on around the country. And so for us in, at USDA to invest in that is something that we see as very important. Okay, thank you. Um, my next question for you, um, you discuss at length the importance of the specialty crop block grant program and how AMS has implemented and standardized national outcome measures to demonstrate the program's performance. Are there any changes that you think need to be made to the program in order to enhance the competitiveness of specialty crops in the United States? Yeah, so as I was just mentioning to Representative Schreier, the specialty crop block grant since its inception in 2006 has funded over $880 million, 11,000 projects. A key part of that program is our partnerships with states. And so the money is actually allocated to the states and the states implement the program. And that's really important because the states can design the program to best suit the needs of their state specialty crop industry. So research, promotion, education, all of those things are already included and are key parts of that program. 
Um, so we see the value in, um, in, that, in that partnership, continuing to strengthen our partnership. Uh, we're also, we just made some updates, as I was also mentioning, on our performance metrics as well. So we're getting really good data back on how well the program is performing. Um, and so those are new metrics in this current round of funding as well. Um, so it's an important program, and we very much value that, that partnership with the state departments of agriculture and admin, administering it. Excuse me. Sorry. Thank you very much. And Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. At this time, I recognize my good friend, Congressman Carbajal, for his line of questioning. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you to all the witnesses uh, for being here today and providing us with your testimony on, the, on these very important programs. My district grows a variety of specialty crops, inclu including strawberries, broccoli, cauliflower, avocados, cut flowers, and more. The success of these crops is in large part because of the hard work by our farmers and our farm workers, also because of the important research and innovative programs funded by the Farm Bill. It is important that programs under the horticulture title help bolster the production and comp competitiveness of specialty crops. Under Secretary Moffitt, the fresh markets created at Metro State. Um, within their existing infrastructure just, that just needed more connections. Um, so fostering that connection. So with MARTA's leadership, but in very strong partnership with the Atlanta Food Bank and many, many other local organizations, as well as producers. Um, I saw them coming together to identify um, local farmers who had product, who are interested in selling into those markets. I saw the opportunity at, as well. You know, they utilize the space at their transit stations. They have carts there. Um, and then, of course, in partnership with, you know, um, and, and looking at the EBT program and many of the people who are purchasing fr fresh fruits and vegetables through the carts are using the EBT program and the SNAP program. And so looking at all of those linkages, connecting the dots is really important. And that's where things like the Regional Food Systems Partnership Program and the Local Food Promotion Program as well as the farmers market promotion programs are really important because they build the capacity within the community to connect all of the dots together so that the producers who have the food are able to have access to new markets as well as of course the people who are really um, you know who in many communities that are nutrition insecure have access to fresh fruits and vegetables um, but it doesn't come naturally and you know oftentimes I know as a former farmer we're you know we're busy you know farming our fields and so we don't know who's out there. So building the connections, I think, is very important. The specialty crop block grant also does a very good job of helping foster those connections, as well as, as you talked about, research as well. And coming from the California Department of Agriculture, I saw firsthand through so many of the projects we funded the importance of research, as well as education and technical assistance, and then promotion of getting products to market through that program as well. Thank you. Um, moving on, another question for you. Are cut flowers available at these markets? If not, do you think it's feasible to include them to improve the competitiveness of this specialty crop? 
Yeah, the cut flower industry is such an important industry, I know, in your district and in many areas around the country. I uh, was there in February, so there weren't too many cut flowers there, but I do um, you know, know that they are always looking at who are the local producers, what do they have, and the opportunities. So I did see things like honey there um, and other products, um, and so you know, certainly, hopefully, uh, I, you know, there are cut flowers available because it is such an important industry to our economy. Thank you. It's incredibly important that we reduce food waste and find ways to support food recovery efforts, especially when we consider that one in 10 Americans are food insecure. Mr. Cosby, can you elaborate on some of the lessons learned from the community compost and food waste reduction pilot and what the compost is used for? Is data on waste diverted from landfills being collected? And thank you for that question. And, you know, we are working very closely with a lot of these folks that have, you know, have applied and, and received these grants. And from what we are learning is, is that there is a big need out there for compost, especially when you get into some of the situations where uh, some of the uh, areas have been abandoned or the buildings have been abandoned or we have some soils issues. And so folks need good, healthy uh, compost to go in and help them raise these uh, fruits and vegetables. So it's been great to, to, to watch that happen. And, you know, when we start talking about food waste reduction, um, you know, we're working very closely with a lot of uh, those grant recipients, especially like schools where, you know, first food waste could be tremendous. And so we're trying to look for ways. How do we create, create an a atmosphere where you're not uh, wasting that food? And then if you do have surplus, how do we make sure it gets to some of these facilities so it can be composted and turn it back into productive soils? So we think those those two opportunities are great and it is working very well. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Time, I yield back. The gentleman's time has expired. Uh, the chair recognizes the gentlewoman from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow. Thank you very much for joining us for the hearing. Thank you so much, Chair Plaskett and Ranking Member Baird, and to our USDA officials with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss and review horticulture and urban agriculture programs authorized by the Farm Bill. As we all well know, agriculturalists are the cornerstone of food and fiber production in America. In my home district, many of the rural communities are fueled by the perseverance of our local agricultural producers, large and small. Like many sectors of agriculture, niche and specialty crop farmers throughout Louisiana continue to face challenges, whether that be labor shortages, increased input costs, availability of risk management tools, or access to new market opportunities. That's why it's essential we are spearheading this conversation today. Under Secretary Moffitt, as you know, the Plant Pest and Disease Management and Disaster Prevention Program and the National Clean Plant Network were originally established through the Farm Bill and have since been made permanent law and incorporated into APHIS Plant Protection and Quarantine Space Budget. As we continue to hear, these programs provide critical funding to pest prevention, mitigation, and addressing emerging challenges for specialty crop producers. A hallmark of these programs has been the robust involvement of stakeholders in the affected specialty crop industries, particularly in deciding which activities to fund. Can you talk more about these programs and what is this administration's commitment to stakeholder engagement for these programs? And how do you plan to incorporate their input into project funding decisions? Yeah, thank you so much, Congresswoman Letlow. It's, and it's a pleasure to meet you um, and to be here today. 
the, those programs that you described are really key and important programs to the work that, that the team at APHIS does. Just a few weeks ago, I was also, when I was down in Georgia also, I visited the, um, the dog training center there, and it's an important part. Um, we see them when we're at airports, but they're also working behind the scenes at baggage facilities around the country and parcel facilities, um, really to make sure that, that they're sniffing out and detecting any sort of, of um, fruits or vegetables that might be coming into the country that could have pests and disease. So those are things that are funded in part through those programs. Very important and critical programs as well. You asked about stakeholder engagement. Stakeholder engagement is essential to the work that we do. We do our best work when we're listening and learning and hearing from the people out in the field, the people with the expertise, um, and, and really adapting and serving um, those folks. And so um, stakeholder engagement is, is something that I am committed to. I know the team at APHIS is also has a strong commitment to. And we look forward to, um, to the advisory committees and all of the work that, um, that we do to get feedback to make sure that our programs best serve the needs of, of the community that we're serving. Thank you so much. I look forward to working with both of you and Chief Cosby as we work towards the next Farm Bill. I yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you very much for the, your line of questioning. And I would like to ask uh, the esteemed Congresswoman Pingree of Maine for her questions. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Chair Plastic. Thank you so much for holding this hearing. And I'm not sure about the esteem part, but I appreciate your, uh, your confidence in me. So Undersecretary Moffat, we are so pleased uh, to have you with our committee today and to have you in the position that you have. So thank you so much for being with us. And I just can't tell you how pleased I am that you made the announcement about the origin of livestock rule. We, um, you know, I don't know that I've had a committee hearing that I haven't had to bring that up and ask the USDA when something's going to happen. So uh, the fact that we get to tell our constituents now that we're moving forward on this, it's going to make a huge difference, particularly right now when the dairy farmers, organic dairy farmers have been so challenged and throughout the Northeast with losing a contract. So this is a really important time. I can't thank you enough. Um, and I'm also glad uh, to hear so many questions related to LAMP. I was really pleased to have a chance to work on that um, in the 2018 Farm Bill. So I appreciate some of the conversations people have been having about streamlining the process, making sure it's accessible. Um, I hope we can continue in that um, going in that direction. So one kind of quick question about uh, this whole idea of how we support more resilient local and regional supply chains. Um, I often hear about the need for affordable and accessible capital to develop infrastructure. And I'm talking about things like food safety equipment, packing equipment, cold storage, uh, similar infrastructure that are on farms and at food hubs, um, which just are so important in that, in that domain. But a lot of times I've also heard that um, AMS rules around grant making prohibits AMS grants for investing in such badly needed food systems infrastructure. And do you think there's something we should be looking at when it comes to the 2018 Farm Bill and LAMP to make sure that this is a possibility and it's covered? Yeah, thank you, Representative Pingree. And it is um, certainly it is an exciting day to be able to um, to announce uh, the origin of livestock final rule, as well as I look forward to working on implementing that. And I just want to thank you and um, and and other members of Congress, as well as the Northeast dairy industry as a whole, and the State Departments of Agriculture for engagement on. Um, 
uh, over the past six months on Northeast organic dairy issues. Um, we, you know, announced the Dairy Business Innovation Center funding, um, and hopefully that is a, a big part of the solution. But we also know that Origin of Livestock is another piece of it. Again, multiple solutions for a, a very large beastly problem. Um, you asked about the LAMP program being able to purchase equipment and, and some of the very much needed things um, that we see, you know, of course, as producers are coming together to be able to aggregate, to do food hubs, those sorts of things are very, very important. We've been working with the team at AMS on the opportunities of what the grant funding can fund, um, and we continue to have those conversations about, um, you know, capacity is really important and what does that look like. So I am happy to, you know, uh, we are happy to talk further with you guys, provide technical assistance, provide answers that you have about what we can and cannot fund, and where are the opportunities there. Um, so look forward to further engagement on that. Great, thank you. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that was in your testimony, and I, I don't mean to uh, spring this on you because I don't know that you are going to have a, a complete answer, but was around hemp production and um, the opportunities we created in the 2018 Farm Bill, but then um, some of the challenges that our producers have faced. I have a bill called the Hemp Advancement Act that really deals with some of the statutory changes, the issues people have had around the THC threshold, use of DEA labs, 10-year um, ban on, on felons working in, in the field and getting licensed. So I know those are sort of specific, but what I often hear from the hemp producers when we're talking about those obstacles is just the need for more comprehensive support um, on marketing, on processing development. It, it just sort of breaks my heart that we opened up this opportunity, yet um, still most of the hemp that's used for clothing um, or for a whole variety of, of uses that could be an expansion area for us, not, not just the CBD part, um, but it's going to require a lot of support and engagement. And I don't expect you to have a, a thorough answer, but is that something we can sort of talk about and maybe look at in the next farm bill? Or, or do you see some opportunities there for the USDA? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, this is such an important and growing industry. I'd say it's a new industry. It's a new revived industry from a long time ago. Um, and we do have an interagency work group at USDA looking at all of the, uh, how hemp producers can access all of the, you know, the funding and the, um, the funding that we do have at USDA and the programming that USDA has as well. I'm happy to talk with you further about the questions that you have, and um, and I, you know certainly I know our team has been um, as we're aware of your bill and providing technical assistance, and, and sure. please do know our door is always open for that. Great. Well, you're um, exactly out of time. I'm exactly out of time, so thank you. I'll yield back, and I uh, really appreciate your uh, being with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for your questions as well, um, and I want to thank the witnesses and our first panel for being with us today. Under Secretary Moffitt and Chief Cosby, thank you for your testimony and for responding to the questions that members had. The committee will take a brief five minute recess to allow our witnesses to depart and for our second panel of witnesses to take their seats or to come onto the Zoom screen. Thank you. Okay, we are ready to begin on the second panel. And I want to thank you all very much for your patience. Uh, it had been my hope to be in the committee room. Um, personal reasons have me um, still in the district uh, attending to family matters. So I'm grateful for the, op the ability that we have virtually to still conduct meetings and still engage in people's business 
while uh, also attending to the life eventualities that happen. Uh, I want to um, call the committee to order and I'm pleased to welcome our second panel of witnesses to the hearing. Our first witness for this Powell panel is Ms. Laura Bacha, who is the Chief Operating Officer for the Organic Trade Association, which is critical to the discussion that we are having here this morning. And to introduce our, next, our second witness, I'm pleased to yield to our colleague from California, Mr. Panetta. Thank you, Madam Chair. I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, but also, it is a true honor this morning that I get to introduce our next witness for today's hearing, Bree Ryder-Smith. I'm proud to introduce Ms. Ryder-Smith, not only because she's from my district and she's actually a neighbor of mine, but I do believe that Ms. Ryder-Smith knows exactly what it takes to grow, to harvest, to pack, to transport, and to sell a berry. Yes, based on our background, she understands the many challenges that go along with producing not just berries, but all specialty crops and the difficulties from Mother Nature to our mandates, to our markets, to labor. Now, look, with most people in agriculture, Bree will be the first to tell us about those challenges. But what makes her and her family very unique is that they also talk about and more importantly, they act about coming up with solutions. Now, Bree's a fifth generation berry farmer who, with her husband, Brian, have a blueberry farm in Chile and a blackberry ranch in California. Bree also serves as a vice president of product leadership for the world's largest berry company, Driscoll's, where she is responsible for looking into the future of berry production and developing strategies to build the business that her family started in the late 1800s. It is a company that has a one family philosophy and has got to a point where they work with thousands of families, thousands of berry growers across the world. So she deals with all types of farmers and farm workers and deals with all types of problems. But more importantly, she also works hard to find all types of solutions. As a California native, she received a degree from Cal Poly University and an MBA from Thunderbird School of Global Management. She brings with her a legacy of service in the agricultural industry and a wealth of knowledge that I know will benefit this committee hearing today. She understands legacy, but more importantly, she understands and accepts the, res the responsibility to not just uphold, but also to further the legacy of not just her family, but other families in agriculture. For that, it's my honor to introduce to you Ms. Bree Ryder-Smith, and I yield back. Thank you very much to my distinguished colleague from, as he deems it, the Salad Bowl District in California. And uh, it's my honor to also uh, introduce our third witness for the panel, Mr. Mark Oshima who is the chief marketing officer and co-founder of Aero Farms. We're great and really glad to have you with us. And our fourth witness is a dear friend of mine and an important person in the agriculture of the U.S. Virgin Islands, Nate Olive, who is the owner and operator of Ridge to Reef Farm. Ridge to Reef Farm is a 100-acre organic certified farm on the island of St. Croix. Um, Dr. Olive, uh, Mr. Nate Olive has a PhD, is also the president 
uh, duly elected of the Virgin Islands Farmers Alliance, which strives to be a unified voice for farmers in the Virgin Islands. He is on the island of St. Croix, which is my home island in the Virgin Islands of the United States. And I want to thank him for offering his time, his tireless dedication to farming and to the agricultural growth of the territory, as well as to the young people and ensuring that we in the Virgin Islands at least attempt, make a strive and effort to um, to reverse the complete reliance on outside food production um, to sustain us. To introduce our fifth and final witness for this panel, I'm pleased to yield to the ranking member, Mr. Baird. Thank you, Madam Chair. And it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Director Ketley. Kettler, I'm sorry I mispronounced that. Anyway, uh, to testify before us today, Bruce is the director of the Indiana State Department of Agriculture and he currently serves as the second vice president of the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture. With over 30 years of experience across numerous sectors of the agricultural industry, Bruce has a deep understanding of the diverse needs of the industry and the important programs authorized in the Farm Bill. At ISDA, Bruce is a tireless advocate for agriculture, working to promote environmental stewardship enhance economic opportunities for Hoosier farmers, and grow the next generation of leaders. In addition to his roles with the Indiana State Department of Agriculture NASDA, and NASDA, Bruce is the Director of the Agricultural Development of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation and serves on the Ohio State University President's Alumni Advisory Council and on the Dean's Advisory Council for the Purdue College of Agriculture. Bruce, I'm really honored to have you with us here today, and I look forward to hearing from you and share your testimony with the committee. So thanks for being here, Bruce. I yield back. I thank the gentleman. Welcome you all today. We will now proceed to hearing your testimonies. You will each have five minutes. The timer should be visible to you, and I will count down to zero, at which point your time has expired. Um, Ms. Batcha, please begin when you are ready. Chairwoman Plaskett, Ranking Member Baird, and members of the committee, thank you for holding this hearing and inviting me to testify on behalf of the organic sector. I'm Laura Batcha, CEO of the Organic Trade Association. Our members represent the entire organic supply chain, including growers, shippers, processors, certifiers, regional farmers associations, brands, and retailers in all 50 states. Last year, organic sales in the U.S. grew by more than 12 percent, reaching a record high of $62 billion. Today, more than 15 percent of produce sold, nearly 10 percent of dairy and eggs, and more than 7 percent of packaged foods sold in the United States are certified organic demonstrating the importance the consumers place on this sector. Today we released the results of a study by, a, by the firm Edelman that's an organic follow-on to their widely cited consumer trust barometer. What we found was that 89% of consumers say that the USDA should update the organic standards periodically, and 87% of consumers expect these updates to reflect e evolving understandings about soil, climate, 
health, animal welfare, and more. Yet less than 45% of the general population gives USDA high marks today for the stewardship of the organic program. Organics at a critical juncture and inflection point. We know that consumers have fueled the strong growth of the industry for over 20 years, but the marketplace is becoming more crowded with new certifications and label claims. What sets USDA organic apart from other private certification and marketing claims is that the standards are developed and enforced by federal law and regulations. It's a voluntary regulatory program where the market rewards businesses and farmers who choose to opt in and meet these strict standards. And participation in the program is an important opportunity to diversify farms, create sustainable practices, and livelihoods. For the last 20 years, organic standards have remained largely static. In fact, when it comes to organic practice standards, only one major rule has been implemented by USDA in the last 12 years. Well, two. We've heard one announced this morning, so we appreciate that. Nearly two dozen other recommendations to improve the standards have been submitted to USDA by the National Organic Standards Board, the Federal Advisory Committee established in the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990. They all remain unimplemented. The very purpose of the Organic Act is to create uniform, robust standards for marketing of organic products nationwide. Many of these recommendations address inconsistencies and lack of clarity in the existing regulations that have led to competitive harm and market failure. Others improve sustainability outcomes in organic production systems. That's why OTA supports H.R. 2918, the Continuous Improvement and Accountability in Organic Standards Act, a bipartisan piece of bipartisan piece of legislation introduced by Representatives Peter DeFazio, Rodney Davis, Shelley Pingree, Ron Kine, Dan Newhouse, and Jimmy Panetta. The bill updates the way USDA would administer these standards and sets forth a future process by which the National Organic Program can adapt in a more timely and transparent fashion. We applaud the announcement this morning by Undersecretary Moffitt that USDA is publishing the Origin of Livestock Rule. 19 years in the making since that recommendation was handed off to USDA. While we're encouraged that USDA has started the process of moving forward on the regulatory backlog, in the next Farm Bill, we'd like to see this legislation be reintroduced with a focus on institutionalizing a more stable future for organic by restructuring the public-private partnership, investing in oversight and enforcement, and prioritizing continuous improvement. Organic provides economic opportunities for farmers and businesses, creates jobs, and lifts rural economies, while also utilizing sustainable farming practices that are proven to help mitigate the threat of climate change. There's an important opportunity to invest in conservation, technical assistance, as well as focused market development and infrastructure to address supply chain constraints and increase domestic production of organic. We look forward to working with Congress and members of this committee to advance organic in the 2023 Farm Bill. Thank you for the opportunity to provide my testimony this morning um, to inform federal policy, and I'm happy to address any of your questions. Thank you very much for that. Ms. Smith, please begin when you are ready. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Perfect. Okay, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you on behalf of Driscoll's and the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance. Uh, Mr. Panetta covered some of this, but I'm going to stick to the script because I'm a bit nervous. So at Driscoll's, I'm the vice president of product leadership. My team authors the five-year strategic plans for each berry type, conventional and organic. These plans are allocated to hundreds of independent farmers who grow, pick, and pack our proprietary varieties of strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, and blueberries. 
Driscoll's generally cools, handles, markets, and sells the fruit, and then we split the proceeds with our growers. In addition to our farm in Chile, my husband and I also grow blackberries in Watsonville, California, where my family has been growing berries for over 125 years. My grandfather was one of the founders of Driscoll's. In addition to our home state of California, Driscoll's berries grow in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, New Jersey, Oregon, and Washington. Specialty crop production in the United States accounts for $66 billion in farm gate value, about a third of all farm crop cash receipts. The specialty crop industry has changed tremendously to satisfy consumer demands, adapt to new technology, and compete in an increasingly global marketplace. We want to raise the importance of specialty crops today, not simply as one more sector of the ag economy, but as an important source of food to every American. The specialty crop industry is united to advocate for a common set of priorities as Congress prepares to reauthorize the Farm Bill. A broad coalition of more than 120 specialty crop organizations known as the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance represents the whole of the fruit, vegetable, and tree fruit, tree nut industry. The Alliance has formed working groups covering each title of the Farm Bill, along with additional working groups to evaluate cross-title policy recommendations. Over the coming weeks, these working groups will evaluate existing Farm Bill programs and consider new policy proposals. The Alliance will then form a single set of recommendations representing the collective views of the specialty crop industry. I would like to highlight some of the programs our industry is currently using, as well as preview some areas of interest that are likely to come forward during the policy development process. Research. The Farm Bill provides our industry with vital tools to address our substantial research needs. Our industry includes hundreds of crops, each with unique challenges, and the demand for funding under these programs consistently outstrips available dollars. Trade. Farm Bill programs both promote the export of America's specialty crops and help prevent unwanted plant pests from accompanying imported specialty crops. In an increasingly competitive global marketplace, these programs are more important than ever. Nutrition. The Farm Bill authorizes the government to purchase and then donate a variety of non-price supported commodities, including fruit, vegetable, and tree nut products through USDA's domestic nutrition and food assistance programs. These donations help vulnerable Americans to eat a healthy diet and avoid hunger, while also helping to balance supply and demand for various commodities in our sector. The importance of these programs was definitely magnified during COVID. Natural resource management. The specialty crop industry strongly supports USDA's working lands conservation programs. However, payment limits and eligibility requirements constrain the fruit and vegetable sector's ability to access important benefits of these programs. As the produce industry moves forward with our farm bill, recommendations, we want to work with the committee to develop creative solutions that preserve policy objectives of these limitations while allowing us to participate fully in USDA's conservation programs. Addressing these impediments will only become more important as we work together to address climate change. Disaster and crop insurance. The specialty crop industry has increasingly been impacted by natural disasters across the United States. The West has experienced the longest and deepest drought in some places in all recorded history. Producers across the South have been hammered by extreme weather events. Additionally, COVID severely disrupted our supply chains for retail and food service customers. 
These recent experiences have prompted our industry to re-examine risk management and commodity support programs. And a final thought regarding labor. While I know this issue is not directly in the jurisdiction of this committee or within the traditional parameters of the Farm Bill, I need to mention the ongoing and increasingly urgent need to address labor issues. While agriculture plays the critical role in maintaining a safe and secure food supply vital to our national security, a flourishing agricultural industry is crucial to the strength of rural America. Agricultural producers across the country need a legal and stable workforce to continue feeding American families. Thank you for this opportunity to speak to you about the specialty crop industry, and I welcome any questions you may have. Thank you very much for your testimony, and I'm sure we'll have questions for you and the other witnesses. Mr. Oshima, please begin when you are ready. Chair Plaskett and Ranking Member Baird, thank you for the opportunity to speak about the significant role of both urban agriculture and the controlled environment agriculture, also known as CEA, for the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill. I'm Mark Oshima, co-founder and chief marketing officer uh, for Aero Farms, the leader in indoor vertical farming. I'm also the board chair for the CEA Food Safety Coalition and a member of the FDA Romaine Advisory Task Force and the International Fresh Produce Association's Grower Shipper Council. The U.S. imports one-third of its vegetables and nearly two-thirds of its fruit. And COVID-19 and now the war in Ukraine have put an even bigger spotlight on how fragile our food system is. We need new paradigms to help us even build uh, even greater food resiliency and security. CEA is one of these new paradigms and includes high-tech greenhouses and indoor vertical farms growing nutritious crops like leafy greens, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, and berries. CEA farms can be placed where the consumers are, helping cut out a complex supply chain and nourishing local communities all year round with fewer resources. Since 2004, Aero Farms has been leading the way for indoor vertical farming with a mission to grow the best plants possible for the betterment of humanity. We can grow with up to 95% less water and 99% less land compared to traditional farms while using zero pesticides ever. We unlock plant science even further through having a totally controlled environment independent of sun, season, and weather. We use our knowledge of plants to be great farmers and then apply these capabilities to solve broader challenges in agriculture. Our global headquarters are in Newark, New Jersey, with additional farms underway in Danville, Virginia, the St. Louis region, and overseas in Abu Dhabi, UAE. Our award-winning produce is found throughout the U.S. at top retailers and food service companies, and we're scaling rapidly to meet demand. While leading with technology, we're also leading with a strong commitment to our communities. Aero Farms is a certified B Corporation with a transparent scorecard on environmental and societal factors, like creating year-round jobs with fair wages and benefits. We've partnered with the New Jersey Ranchery Program, providing jobs to those previously incarcerated and offering second-chance opportunities. And to date, we've proudly hired over 100 team members through this program. We also create impact through our community farms, where we install small indoor vertical farms in community centers, municipal buildings, and schools like Phillips Academy Charter School in downtown Newark, New Jersey, where we've had a working farm for over 10 years right in their dining hall, changing the students' eating habits. Aerofarms has also helped to lead the broader industry by partnering closely with USDA. We're one of the founding companies for the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research Precision Indoor Plants Consortium. We're working on next-generation crops. We also are one of the founding companies for the CEA Food Safety Coalition that has worked closely with FDA and CDC on the safety benefits of growing indoors. 
The U.S. is leading agriculture innovation around the world, but we can do even more. We encourage you to promote competitive R&D programs so we can maintain a technological edge that favors innovation and partnership here rather than abroad. The upcoming 2023 Farm Bill offers a big opportunity to ensure that the entire agriculture industry, both rural and urban, is represented and provide innovative pathways for the future of farming. We believe there are opportunities to do this in nearly every title, including nutrition, credit, rural development, and energy. For today, we'll focus on two key areas. First, within the horticultural title, we see opportunity to expand the local agriculture market program and the farmer's market promotion program to include urban, CEA, and indoor vertical farming practices. Second, within the research title, we support increasing overall funding for the urban, indoor, and emerging agriculture production, research, education, and extension initiative. The 2023 Farm Bill is also an opportunity to incentivize innovation and create a level playing field. We can no longer afford to think of agriculture as exclusively rural or business as usual, but we need to create the fair market conditions that enable true progress and innovation. We should factor these considerations into our true cost of food and use policy to drive positive behavior, establishing incentives for things like water conservation and land protection, and creating taxes to disincentivize the overuse of pesticides and fertilizers that create runoff and land degradation. Fair competition also extends to labor and enforcing federal minimum wage and benefits. We have the opportunity to raise performance standards and incentivize the right behavior that will be good for the industry, the environment, society, and the economy. In closing, at Aero Farms, we're proud to be leading through innovation to help elevate agriculture, urban farming, CEA, and indoor vertical farming are about creating local jobs and increasing access to healthy produce all year round, but the impact that we can have on the broader agriculture industry is even greater. We're grateful for American leadership here and know how much more we can achieve if the 2023 Farm Bill is made to work for the entire industry. Thank you for your time and consideration, and we look forward to addressing any questions. Thank you. Thank you. The next witness will be Dr. Olive. Um, Mr. Olive, you are recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Uh, good morning, members of Congress, supportive staff, fellow testifiers, and the listening public. It's an honor to be here, truly. Uh, I'm Nate Olive, and I'm owner-operator of Ridge Tarif Farm, certified organic on St. Croix, and the president of the Virgin Island Farmers Alliance, as best as I can, uh, in navigating federal support in farming of, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I sincerely hope that my input can make, can help beyond, make a difference in improving the quality of life for farmers in the territory. So I'll start by telling you a little bit about the farm, although uh, Delegate Plastic did, did such a wonderful job, I don't have to say much, and the Virgin Island Farmers Alliance. Um, our mission as a farm is to help reverse the trend of food import dependency which is greater than 98% for our territory through ecologically regenerative and culturally appropriate agricultural practices. We grow over hundred varieties of organic fruits and vegetables. And we also have pasture-raised sheep and hogs that are not certified organic due to the lack of available cost-effective organic certified feed sources. The Virgin Island Farmers Alliance is a grassroots domestic nonprofit with the purpose of providing a unified voice for farmers in the territory. We have over 100 members across the islands of St. John, St. Croix, and St. Thomas. And together, we coordinate farm to school activities along with other co marketing activities, conduct production research under a 
USDA uh, Sustainable Agricultural Research Education Grant, and we'll be establishing a food hub storage facility for Alliance members with the support of World Central Kitchen soon. We're very excited about that. So as we meet today, there's a soaring demand and a broad base of support for agriculture in the Virgin Islands to rejoin the economic development of the territory. But there's many challenges here that remain, largely due to our small population and land area, our distance from the mainland, and relatively large local government. Our insular geography uh, greatly creates uh, higher farm input costs in every way in comparison to our import market competition. Nearly all farms here are considered small farm operations and the economic rules of efficiency and scale continue to work against us. So today we're trying to find our footing and like other rural areas, we cannot do so without the we can't reach our optimal potential without special considerations and support through the Farm Bill. So now I'm going to tell you about a few of our, the programs under the Farm Bill that we at Ridge Tree Farm are engaged in. Um, first of all, I'll say that we're not, we're not taking part in the specialty uh, block grant program because it's geared toward beginning farmers here in the territory in this round. Uh, but we look forward to future rounds and one of the most effective programs here has been the NRCS Equip Conservation Program. Um, we have used this to dig wells, erect livestock fencing, establish rainwater catchment for irrigation, construct a high tunnel for tomato and cucumber production. Many other farms have utilized this important program for similar purposes. Um, some problems with the program are the reimbursement nature that makes it out of reach for a lot of small farms here without the capital to put up the money. Um, the multi-year time frame that it takes from application to execution and reimbursement and um, the cost share uh, costs here are higher than some of the cost share figures that are anticipated. Uh, we end up you know, supposed to be 90% for some of the things we end up paying 60 or we only get 60% of the cost covered here in our special situation in the Virgin Islands. Second, the USDA disaster recovery programs, such as debris removal, uh, the tree replacement program, those are instrumental, uh, the fencing program, those are instrumental for many farmers, including Ridge Tree Farm, after the disastrous effects of hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017. So thank you so much for that support. I would not be here talking with you without that. Um, so that has been huge. And another program that we're involved in is the value added producer grant. Uh, we were awarded, we're the first um, in the territory to, to receive that some years ago uh, for a planning grant for agroforestry for our fruit share program. Um, fifth, as I mentioned above, uh, we participate in the uh, federally funded farm to school program since it started in 2014 here in the territory. And so we serve as an aggregation hub for the other farms. We send crops every week that are gathered by over 15 farms to the central school warehouse. And uh, we would like to see a greater oversight in the award of the contracts so that they, they go to local farmers and not to import farmers uh, to protect our uh, market here. And that's why we formed the Virgin Island Farmers Alliance to speak up mainly for that need among others. Um, other programs that we're participating in here is the, uh, the NAP non-insured crop disaster assistance program after the hurricanes, the livestock forage disaster program, which is, we have a lot, we've had a lot of droughts in the past years. That's been important. The geographic disadvantaged farmer program, 
which helps cover some of the import extra costs, but it's not enough. And the USDA Rural Energy Program, where we upgraded our solar. And there's more that I could list. Uh, but uh, there's a, a complete list in my testimony that's submitted. So a few suggestions that I have are to uh, increase funding to farms directly instead of channeling through larger distributive uh, local government programs. And two, to increase capacity of our local USDA offices to offer more on-farm support and grant writing help. Uh, as mentioned before uh, by Ms. Moffitt, the, a lot of producers have difficulties with all the paperwork and, and it's, it's, it's very preventative to engage in these programs. So we need more help from our office on that and we'd like them to get more support to raise the expected cost for equip conservation practices so that they're, uh, you know, the act, so they're covering the actual cost of what it takes to get it here and install in the Virgin Islands, to remove barriers of program participation by removing the reimbursement nature of many programs like the equip and the hurricane disaster programs, which we couldn't complete the fencing and other things because after the hurricanes, we had no income to put up. The Mr. Lee, yes. we, you've gone way over your time. Okay. If you want to close out and we'll ask questions. Yeah, that's it. Uh, thank you for your attention. and I appreciate it. I'll yield. Thank you. Um, the last witness, Mr. Kettler, you are recognized for five minutes. Good morning and thank you, Chair Plaskett and Ranking Member Baird for the opportunity to speak today. I really appreciate it. My name is Bruce Kettler and I serve as the director of the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. I have over 30 years of leadership experience in the agriculture industry with knowledge of production agriculture, sales, and the agriculture supply businesses. Prior to joining ISDA, I spent 11 years at Bex Hybrids and 17 years at Dow AgriSciences, where I worked in a variety of roles including sales, marketing, and public and industry relations. In addition to my role as director at ISDA, as Representative Baird mentioned, I also serve as the second vice president for the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture, or NASDA. NASDA is a nonpartisan, nonprofit association that represents the elected and appointed commissioners, secretaries, and directors of the departments of agriculture in all 50 states and four U.S. territories, including the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, Chair. NASDA grows and enhances American agriculture through policy, partnerships, and public engagement. I would first like to recognize the importance of the Agriculture Improvement Act of 2018. The 2018 Farm Bill was a unified, bipartisan bill that secured a commitment to American farmers and ranchers while protecting the critical food and nutritional assistance programs for those who need it most. As I interact with farmers, our agricultural supply businesses, and industry leaders in Indiana, the word uncertainty keeps coming up time and time again. It has replaced the word resiliency that was so often used during the pandemic. Uncertainty sends chills down the spines of farmers as they attempt to make critical business decisions. Uncertainty impacts families in need of assistance with putting food on the table. And uncertainty disrupts the food supply chain as we witness throughout the pandemic. As the House Committee on Agriculture begins these hearings for the 2023 Farm Bill, it is vital that Congress provide certainty by delivering forward-looking, fully funded Farm Bill and on time. 
If the pandemic and the recent events unfolding in Ukraine have taught us anything, it is that this farm bill and all future farm bills are an issue of national security. State departments of agriculture play a critical role in food and agriculture policy in the United States. As regulators and advocates for the agricultural industry, NASDA's voice is unique between the nexus of the states and the federal government. NASDA members lead in areas ranging from food safety to resource conservation and promote agriculture locally and abroad. As the state regulators and co-regulators with federal agencies, NASDA members are actively involved in ensuring the safety of an abundant food supply, protecting animal and plant health, implementing conservation programs, and promoting the vitality of rural communities. In a time of increased risk and challenges for the agriculture industry, federal legislation and regulations should work to promote economic stability while guaranteeing a safe and accessible food supply. This work must be a joint venture between the states and federal government. Looking forward, NASA calls for a renewed commitment to cooperative federalism. It is critical that this partnership between states and the federal government recognizes and enhances the role of states in federal policymaking. In my written testimony submitted to the committee, there are additional comments about specialty crop block grants, invasive species, the Food Safety Modernization Act and Food Safety Education, the FIFRA Interagency Working Group, hemp, urban agriculture, and the local agriculture marketing program. Agriculture producers, the rural economy, and communities of every size rely upon a forward-looking, and fully funded farm bill. The farm bill must provide farmers and ranchers with a reliable safety net. The farm bill must provide consumers access to the safest and most affordable food supply. The next farm bill must remain unified. Securing a commitment to American agriculture and critical food and nutrition assistance programs for those who need it most. In short, the next farm bill is an issue of national security. Thank you for the invitation to address the subcommittee today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much uh, to all of our witnesses for your questions. We will now take witness questions from the witnesses in order of seniority, as we did in the first panel. Um, you'll be, and I will start with my questions first. Um, Mr. Olive. I wanted to ask if you would share with, with us which USDA local farm system programs and other USDA programs have been beneficial to your farm or to farms like yours in the Virgin Islands? Yes, thank you. Um, well, like I mentioned in my testimony, I mean, one of the biggest things has been the, the NRCS uh, EQUIP program uh, for the cons, which is the environmental quality and um, conservation program. So that has been, you know, really helped build capacity in a sustainable way for our farm and a lot of other farms. As we know, water is a huge issue in the Virgin Islands for all the farms, especially on St. Thomas um, and other areas in St. Croix and St. John. So, you know, these ways to establish with the expert expertise of the USDA and to help, you know, fund some of that have been um, really instrumental 
in, in our success. And um, after the, the hurricanes, the support that we received uh, in the disaster programs, um, we would have lost a lot of farms without those. So, um, you know, I would say that the equip is a regular thing. And then, you know, the, the, the disaster recovery was huge as well. You know, you talk about, we've talked in this committee quite a bit about uh, supply chain issues and how, how that has been magnified during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. In the Virgin Islands, that's really a, a fundamental issue right. that's affected us uh, for many, many years. Can you speak to how we in this committee might support uh, insular areas or isolated areas that have real issues, not only in terms of having the correct uh, amount of supplies coming in, but also the cost of that and what that means to farmers as well. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, in these times with supply chain shortages, the feeling that people have in the States about getting things and cost rising is our everyday reality in the Virgin Islands. That is how it's always been in the Virgin Islands. And now we even have an additional cost on all the inputs that go into our farm from fertilizers to irrigation equipment, seeds, tractor parts. You wouldn't believe what I paid to get a tractor tire shipped here recently. There are there. So I think what could happen is there is the disadvantage geographic disadvantage program uh, through the FSA that helps cover a portion of receipts uh, that we submit every year. Uh, and that pool is divided between all the applicant farmers. Um, I have stopped doing it because the pool seems too small. And honestly, it's not worth my paperwork to do that. So we need a larger pool of money for that uh, disadvantaged uh, you know, program. And we also need help with some upfront uh, stockpiling of things uh, in some way so that they can be made available um, to farmers um, in, a, in a quick way. Because the thing with farming is a lot of things are very time sensitive. And when you need something, you need it now. And it takes so long to get here. That's another cost. It's not uh, overtly financial, but it ends up being that way. So more dedicated funding to insular areas in Virgin Islands and all the other insular areas around. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Ms. Bacha, um, the USDA is reportedly finalizing three key and much anticipated organic industry regulations under the National Organic Program, addressing one, transitioning dairy cows, two, livestock handling and poultry living conditions, and oversight and enforcement of NOPE certified pro products. Some of these proposals date back to the mid-2000s. We're really excited that that's actually happening. What's the importance of USDA finally finalizing these national organic program regulations to the U.S. organic industry? Thank you for that. I, I, I can't uh, underscore how important it is that these three rules are finalized. The first we heard of this morning in terms of origin of livestock being finalized and then the other two rules you mentioned. But additionally, there are almost two dozen additional rules still in the pipeline. I think the thing that's important to remember is oftentimes these rules, as in the case of the two livestock rules and the import oversight rule that was authorized in the last Farm Bill, these Regulations level the playing field pr for producers, so they're all playing by the same same rules. If you're entering the marketplace, you know that other farmers, regardless of where they are in the country or on the globe, are following the same set of standards. So you're 
can understand what the marketplace is expecting from you, and, it, and it's a fair level playing field. I, I think the other um, important thing is that as these uh, standards have languished at USDA, it's driven private certification into the market and required producers and handlers to seek additional certification on top of their organic certification, which complicates their production systems, adds costs, and, and, and confuses the, the value of the seal in the marketplace. And they're, they're having to do that to compensate for the standards not having been finalized. It also stalls opportunities and innovation. So if the playing field is not level globally, it disincentivizes U.S. producers to enter the market and produce some of these important crops domestically in the case of livestock feeds and other grains. Um, so I, it impacts farmers at a very granular level in terms of cost and the playing field globally and across the country, as well as innovation in the marketplace and advancing organic. So I, I appreciate your question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I now ask my ranking member, my colleague, Mr. Baird, for his five minutes of question. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Director Kettler, your testimony calls attention to NASDA's support for growing hemp industry uh, through additional support, like including hemp in the specialty crop block grant program. So in your time as Indiana's Director of Agriculture, I've known you to be a formidable force in bringing hemp to Hoosier farms as a means of crop diversification. As you've traveled the state of Indiana and what in Indiana talked to Indiana farmers, what do you find to be the most needed to address the policy troubles of hemp production? Thank you, Representative Baird. I, I think first and foremost, uh, I hear a lot of people say they want to be included as a specialty crop in uh, and available have available things like specialty crop crop block grants. They they feel that it's a it is new. Would they need some help to be able to get it off the ground? And frankly, to try to find the new markets that uh, those grants oftentimes help people with as well. One of the things uh, in my written testimony, we talk about uh, including it in the uh, in the farm bill more generally from a crop insurance standpoint, obviously not the jurisdiction of this committee. But I think the specialty crop block grants and getting that special, uh, allowing it to become a specialty crop is pretty critical. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in Indiana, we consider that part of the economic development opportunity. So trying to bring in processors and people that can add value to the crop is important as well. Well, thank you. And continuing on, uh, you know, um, uh, support for the land-grant universities is included in research title of the Farm Bill. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the important role that these institutions play in conducting cutting-edge research and educating our next generation of agriculturalists. So can, um, can you uh, talk more about land-grant system and how you work with it? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, probably one of the biggest ways is through that specialty crop, <clears throat> excuse me, crop block grant program. They're always, um, there's, there's typically uh, four or five applications made for that program into ours. Um, so they do a lot of work there. We also work with leadership 
<clears throat> within the extension service to do a lot of programs and help. Uh, good example, farmer stress, mental health, we're working with Purdue Extension Service on that. Uh, there's also a lot of cooperation within, in that case, the College of Agriculture at Purdue, but we're also looking for ways as a department to work with um, with other schools within the state of Indiana that may have other specialties. Uh, I'm thinking particularly in the conservation area uh, where we can rely upon the works that Notre Dame's doing or IU is doing or other schools within the state and finding ways for them to all cooperate together and I think that's pretty important because very often they have special areas of specialization that allow them to be able to uh, to work together and deliver a better product in the end. That always helps in the implementation when you got the cooperation across that. And I'm glad you mentioned the economic development aspect of that. So, Ms. Botcher, can you uh, would you care to elaborate about that same thing about your working with the land grant universities and how you see that? Thank you. Um, one of the uh, important programs that supports uh, organic production systems is the Organic Research and Extension Initiative program. So those are uh, important research dollars. We administer a nonprofit organization called the Organic Center that that convenes science and does invest directly in science at universities, increasingly at land-grant universities. And we also play a role in helping connect organic agricultural researchers across universities to coordinate and discuss and share research priorities with each other. We're really um, fortunate that this year for the first time um, we've been able to work with the Foundation for Food and Agriculture to provide some matching grants for industry investment in um, organic research focusing on land-grant universities. So thank you. So we have uh, about 20 seconds left. If any other witness would would like to address that in 20 seconds. <clears throat> uh, we're happy to talk about the work AeroFarms is actually doing with traditional land-grant universities. Uh, it's part of our bigger collaboration that we do with industry. Uh, we think it's critical as we're writing this new playbook in agriculture that we work closely in thinking about what's needed from a curriculum standpoint, a training standpoint, and thinking about this new science, machine vision, machine learning, uh, a new way of farming. And so we work closely with the universities, both in terms of that training and development, but also on dedicated research and collaboration. Thank you. Uh, I'm out of time. I could spend the rest of the afternoon with all of you, but uh, I guess the chair probably wants me to yield back. Thank you. Uh, at this time, I would ask Ms. Pinkery for her five minutes. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair. Appreciate your uh, holding this hearing, and I really appreciate all of the witnesses' uh, testimony today. Thank you so much for spending your time with us and, and really helping us to think forward about the farm, farm Bill. I won't have a chance to um, dialogue with all of you, but I just want you to know we really uh, will take in everything that you had to say today, and it's very useful to all of us. Um, so for Laura Bacha, you know, uh, Glad to be here with you today to celebrate finally that rule moving forward. And I know how important it is to organic uh, dairies. So um, thanks for the work that the Organic Trade Association has done to also push on that. Um, you know, we're talking so much about the convergence between climate change and agriculture, and that will certainly be an important component of the farm bill. Um, but I'd love to hear from your perspective, um, you know, from organic growers, uh, how we make sure that people understand the connection between what organic growers really have already done um, in terms of climate change, you know, the, the, the critical 
practices that are so uh, foundational to organic certification? Um, and also, what else do you think the USDA could be doing to make sure we make that connection and um, really are, are, are uh, ensuring that organic farmers are rewarded for what they're doing as we go forward thinking about our programs? First, I want to thank you for all your uh, strong leadership and support on helping get that origin of livestock rule across the finish line. So we, we really appreciate your leadership. Um, you know, the climate smart agriculture discussion is, is, is interesting because it's, you know, now climate smart agriculture has become, you know, such a, such a buzz. And I think, you know, when you think about organic agriculture and the requirements of the production standard to include, uh, fostering soil, biodiversity, cover cropping, hedgerows, green manures. These are many of the same practices that, that are being looked at as the key tools to advance uh, climate smart agriculture. And they're embedded in the standards and they always have been. Um, we had a, we have a group of members in town this week, 150 folks from across the country. And one of our farmer members from Montana said yesterday to USDA that, you know, Climate smart is the new buzz, but organic's always been soil smart, and that's built into what the production practices are all about. I think it's also important that as we look at, for example, the pilot program that USDA is launching right now, um, we also have a built-in market reward and claim in the marketplace that can be leveraged in terms of helping the public understand the choice that you make with organic and how that ties to to climate smart agriculture. I think the things we're hearing from producers um, um, about any programs related to climate smart agriculture are making sure, number one, that you know the early adopters are also rewarded in the system, the folks who have been doing this all along. Our research shows that on whole organically managed soils have about 17% higher levels of sequestered carbon than soils as a whole in farms across the country. So they need to, need to be included in the program and rewarded for their efforts over the last number of decades. I also think there needs to be really good crosswalks with the oversight and the paperwork and the certification and the farm plans that are required in organic so that there can be uh, streamlined qualification for programs that USDA may, USDA may roll out so that farmers don't have to start over again and redemonstrate their climate smart status. I think we also have some creative ideas that may require some support from the committee in the next farm bill that could, you know, uh, bring the USDA seal more into the, the, the future and allow that seal to communicate directly some of these uh, values of organic production related to climate. Great. Well, thank you for all that. I, I look forward to working with you and certainly um, on organic farmers in general on making sure that all of the things that you mentioned are included. Um, I don't have a lot of time, but um, Ms. Ryder-Smith, I really appreciate that you uh, brought up one of the biggest challenges that we hear about, and that's labor and farm worker shortages. Um, in, in the 30 seconds that I have left, do you want to just uh, address a little bit more about what a challenge that's you see that is and, and how we should be doing more to address it? Sure. I mean, every year we kind of plant a crop that we assume the American population will want to buy from us. And, and every year we don't have enough people to harvest the ripe fruit that we have spent all this money investing in to grow. And so what we ultimately end up doing is 
leaving behind fruit, you know, from the end of an application or the end of a variety and just moving on to the next one. So and is there. And so it's something we've wrestled with and would really appreciate some support on um, on creating a legal, legal and stable workforce. Uh, well, thank you for that. We look forward to really working with you and addressing that. And and the very idea that you're leaving fruit behind in the field um, is horrific on a food waste perspective and, you know, feeding hungry people. And then also for so many farms, just uh, balancing the budget and making sure it all works. So I, I need to yield back. But uh, thank you again, everyone, for your testimony. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, at this time, I'd like to uh, invite the Congressman Panetta for five minutes of questioning. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you for having this hearing. Uh, and thanks to all of our witnesses, uh, those who are here in the room, those who are here virtually, appreciate your testimony information that will definitely be used as we head into the Farm Bill 2023. Uh, Laura, Ms. Bacha, good to see you again, as always. Um, you know, based on the question that you just answered, you talked a lot about uh, streamlining the regulations, but also uh, in your testimony, you talked about infrastructure capacity improvements. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on the supply chain improvements that, you know, what they would do, how, what, what they might look like, and how they would bolster the organic industry? Thank you for that. Nice to see you as well. Um, when a farm transitions to organic, they have to transition their whole farm three years or the portion of their farm that they're bringing into organic, but they also have to develop new markets for their products. And the organic product off the farm has to be handled in a certified organic facility all the way through to the finished product. So if they grow the product on the farm, they have to be able to move that through the processing infrastructure that, that the commodities touch. Um, one of the challenges with increasing the amount of organic production at the, at the farm level in the U.S. is access to those markets, whether or not it be livestock processing, grain milling, handling facilities, and especially for the small and medium-sized operations to have those facilities close enough to the farm that it makes the, the transportation and the management of that, of that process uh, reasonable. So we're really looking at a, a regional approach that is co commodity-specific, that really looks at some of the bottlenecks in the supply chain and, and invest there. But it's just a requirement of taking that product all the way through to the marketplace. Great. Thank you for explaining that. Um, moving on to uh, Ms. Ryder-Smith, uh, in your testimony, you spoke about crop insurance. Now, obviously, we on the Central Coast, based on the amount of natural disasters that uh, we've been dealing with, especially in the last few years, and what we'll probably have to continue to deal with, from wildfires to the lack of water uh, with our drought. Um, uh, what we've seen is um, the desire to use federal crop insurance programs. However, we don't see them as prolific as I, I think many of our producers there on the Central Coast would like them to be. Can you elaborate on how we could improve the crop insurance program and better incorporate uh, our producers on the Central Coast uh, in those types of programs to be able to use those type of programs? Um, thanks for that question, Mr. Panetta. So we, you know, I am unclear on what qualifies or doesn't qualify for crop insurance, but what I can describe are a few events that have happened in recent history in the Central Coast where no one secured any funding from the federal government. So one of those things would be 
we had this massive hailstorm last year, um, tore down millions of dollars worth of tunnel infrastructure intended to protect crops. The crops were severely impacted, and um, and and their crop insurance didn't didn't help um, with that in any substantial way. Uh, so that's a really big one. We've had some heat events um, that are really unprecedented in the late summer months here on the coast. And again, millions let, of dollars. Let, let me interrupt you, um, if I may, um, and basically ask what, what's been your understanding as to why producers on the Central Coast don't uh, engage in the crop insurance programs as much as they should? So it's I think we all are on the Central Coast because of how temperate the climate usually is. So it might be just a lack of understanding of what they qualify for. It might be that it's perceived as arduous to secure funding. I, I really don't know, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is this is kind of new that we would even need crop insurance or um, have these regular issues substantially impacting our crop, Mr. Panetta. So I don't know if it's just education or if it's that somehow we're not all qualifying or what, uh, but I'm happy to explore it and get back to you. No, that's great. Thank you. And then briefly, um, obviously, I understand that Driscoll's entered into a new agreement with the private company up in South San Francisco in regards to indoor farming. You want to elaborate on that? And maybe uh, Mr. Oshima might want to talk about that as well. Yeah, I think um, a lot of what Mr. Oshima described as the reasons why uh, controlled environment agriculture is exciting is exciting to Driscoll's as well. Uh, we're very excited about our partnership. I was there yesterday and um, and there are ripe strawberries in there. So it's exciting. Um, I think it really hits the mark on accessibility, um, reduces the vulnerability to supply chain issues. So we're excited, invested and in, in looking forward to what's there. Um, but it's still, you know, we're really learning right now. We all are. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. I yield back. Thank you. And I want to thank all of the witnesses that were with us, both in the first and the second panel, and particularly thank my colleagues who participated in the hearing, as well as the staff. Before we adjourn today, I invite the ranking member to share any closing comments he may have. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the, the things that we've heard here today, I think, are very important. To the, to the farm bill in 2023. I'm thinking about specialty crops uh, from the standpoint of fruits and vegetables being located closer to the population. We heard about labor. We heard about how the farm programs might tie into these specialty crops. And so uh, the, in my closing thoughts, I'd just like to say that I really uh, appreciate uh, Mr. Bruce Kettler being here today and having the opportunity to be with him. And I yield back. Thank you to the ranking member. Um, as we close, it's important to emphasize that the provisions included within the horticulture title were critical to supporting American producers through challenging times. The ability for producers in these sectors to leverage programs in, title, in the title to face the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic proved essential. It's clear that as a committee, we must build on these successes in order to continue to support our agriculture community. To our producer and stakeholder witnesses, USDA Undersecretary Moffitt, 
NRCS Chief Cosby, thank you so much for your testimony. I want to particularly thank those individuals in the second panel who provided their own on the ground expertise, doing the work every day to support farmers, support producers and support Americans who are eating the produce that they produce, that they bring to the table. As we look ahead to the next farm bill, I look forward to taking this feedback in order to better address the needs of our producers and stakeholders. And it's my hope that the members of this committee can work collaboratively to be able to support and advance the interest of American agriculture. Under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 days, 10 calendar days. To receive additional material and supplemental written responses from the witnesses to any question posed by a member. This hearing of the Subcommittee on Biotechnology, Horticulture and Research is adjourned.